From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to a very special episode of the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. It's our 100th episode. (laughs) My name is Jason Banshee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help us celebrate our 100th episode, we've invited six of our past guests to join us and share what has changed since their last appearance. But before we bring on our amazing guests, allow me to introduce my co-hosts, Joelle Mitchell and Alicia Pappas. How are you today, Joelle? I saw on my drive into work, I was stopped at the traffic lights and on the curb beside me was a midsection of a snake. Just a midsection. Just a midsection. And it had been cleanly sliced on each end. So it hadn't, like, there was no evidence of gnawing. So it, it's a puzzle. <laughs> How did you know it was a snake if it was missing, like, the head and the tail? Well, because I've seen snakes and I know what their skin looks like. How fast were you driving? I was stopped at the lights. Uh, okay. So I had a, a plenty of time to peer out of my window and observe. It wasn't a scar? No. No, there was clearly a spine and then a meat oh. section. Yeah. Joelle, have you been taking any substances recently? I have not. Just checking. Okay. I was stone cold <laughs> sober. That's unlike you. What can I say? <laughs> this is that's not true. Um, yeah, no, a mystery. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting. Maybe oh. there was a um, a car that was had snakes on there for people to cook, and one fell off the back. Who, who knows? Yeah, look, um, let's not probably dwell on that too long. It's, I'd, I'd it's rather if we didn't. I'd um, like an update on a future episode, but we, we this is going to be a long episode. Yes. So we should probably bring in Alicia. How are you today, Alicia? Hi, both. Um, I'm doing okay. I'm coming off a bit of a migraine. So if I am not too articulate or a bit vacant, with some of my responses, that's why. But um, I'm getting ready to move house next week, so it's just all happening. I'm having a, uh, I don't know if I'm going left or right at the moment. Well, luckily we're recording this over many days, um, so hopefully <laughs> you're a bit sharper on some of the other days that we're recording. Uh, we won't we won't be asking you to do too much of the heavy lifting on this episode, Alicia. But glad to have you in as one of our. Uh, special co-hosts. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So um, we've got six guests, so we should probably introduce the first one in. Yes, let's get to that. So Dr. Rebecca Mihalik appeared in episode six, which was called A Reality Check on Sexual Harassment, which was released on February 12th back in 2021. So Beck, welcome again. Thank you so much for having me back and congratulations. Yeah, hundred episodes. Who who would have uh, who would have guessed? Me. I would have actually because it's a really good quality <laughs> podcast. So yeah, oh, you're only what episode six. Episode six. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was it was it was touch and go back then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Joelle's <laughs> still deciding whether she was going to be on the podcast or be a people diagnostics employee this is true. at the time. This so. is true. It was, oh, there um, we go. Oof. Yeah, over a year of employment and hundred podcast episodes in, and she's still here. I'm I'm still just teetering on the edge. Yeah, yeah. Just just don't make her an offer, anyone, because uh, I want to. <laughs> as long as you got right. your EAP in place, isn't that all you need, really? Right. <laughs> Funnily enough, we don't have any EAP. No, we've got a bar. <laughs> <laughs> 
cheaper and it, more fun. It is. Um, in all seriousness, though, this is a this is a serious topic. Um, so, Beck, lots has happened. Um, like your your episode aired, and then almost immediately afterwards, the Brittany Higgins story sort of um, came to air in the media. Um, and there's been a lot mm. going on um, in Australia since then. Can you take us through some of those key events and how they've helped sort of shape the narrative of sexual harassment in Australia? Look, I think there's probably a couple of key points that I make there. And I think one that businesses really need to, if they haven't already cottoned on to, is, and they need to get across, is that these incidences now, yes, they're safety issues, but they are business risks because they hit the media. Brittany Higgins is one example. Um, there have been others that have gone through, you know, in the last three to five years, for example, where, you know, once it gets into the media, it really does take on a life of its own. So, you know, I think Brittany Higgins was probably, in terms of the political environment, it was particularly poignant. Um, and I certainly think that it had, you know, some influence over what we have seen in, in recent weeks with a change of government. So, um, but I think too that, you know, over this time, there's been some other things that have been brewing for quite some time in the background that have finally all sort of come together a bit like the, the very slow moving sort of tsunami has sort of hit the shore. Um, so we had already had um, the Boland review and, you know, the recommendation that we should have increased regulations around this stuff. So, you know, it's, kind of not surprising that all of these things have now started to manifest with looking at sort of, you know, that 24-month mark beyond that. And we're starting to see the codes of practice come out. We're starting to see sexual harassment really explicitly addressed um, in its own category and then in tangential categories too because we're seeing things around gendered violence. We're looking at family and domestic violence. We've got, you know, other forms of aggression that are often linked to sexual harassment and assault type um, aggression in the workplace. So I think that the regulation is sort of coming together as well. And I think that, you know, organisations now should be eyes wide open to this as a safety issue. Um, my observation is that that's not necessarily the case. I'm still seeing a lot of variation. Um, between organisations, still a lot of dogmatic HR-lensed stuff going on. Um, and I guess if I was going to issue forewarning um, to any of the listeners of the podcast is to say, you know, if you're looking another 12 or 24 months down the track and your PCBU has still not got sexual harassment under that safety banner and that risk management perspective, you're probably going to find yourself in, in a fair bit of trouble would be my forewarning. Um, good forewarning. Good. Hopefully everybody's <laughs> listening to that. Um, how, so for, like from the business community, like what have you seen in, in the way that they've responded to these events? Like we've had, you know, the respect at work report come out um, in WA, we've had you know, sort of the um, parliamentary um, inquiry into sexual harassment. We've had the um, the report from Rio Tinto. Um, so we've mm -hmm. had a lot of a lot of these sort of quite significant um, surfacings, I guess, of um, what you know a lot of us have known about for a very long time. But it's now been made really very public. 
um, and harder to deny or sweep under the rug, I guess. Um, so what's yeah. what's sort of the response that you've seen when when these um, types of um, reports and things have come to light? Look, I think if we wanted to specifically mention what's been going on in the mining sector and, of course, the, the inquiry that was just undertaken, you know, it was pretty public. Um, and again, it was in the news cycle, you know, a, a reasonable amount. I think it's really easy to get caught in kind of a race to the bottom and say, you know, mining's got huge problems with these behaviours. Um, mining is not alone. Um, it It's basically everywhere. So, okay, then... Um, we're not as bad as mining or, you know, other organisations have got bigger problems than us. Again, you're not really, you need to go and lift that bit of, you know, go into the corner of your business and go and have a really good hard look in places you don't want to go and have a look. Um, so I think there's a kind of a comparison. Easy to go after these sort of publicly named organisations and um, and sectors and focus on them. I would I would say to people, be very forewarned again that it's it's everywhere it, and unless you are really really proactively assessing this risk and going out and, and proactively trying to identify lead indicators of these sorts of behaviors going on in your organization so unless you're really like on the front foot of kind of an ISO 45003 approach the chances are you're not across it to the level that you should be in your business now respect at work was interesting because again you know, it kind of landed right when the pandemic um, hit and that was very unfortunate uh, in terms of timing. But even now that we've seen the response, um, there's probably more that could have been done with that. Having said that, again, the safety that brought, you know, the safety perspective to the forefront. And, you know, I spoke, I think, in, in the first episode about how we have these multiple jurisdictions that it can fall under and there's a temptation to just kind of buck pass it off to another jurisdiction. Um, every organisation needs to have this under their safety banner and they need to have a risk management perspective on it. Um, I think my observation, I sort of alluded to it before, is there's, there's a wide degree of variation. So I have some clients, for example, that are in the mining sector and some of them, you know, started work on this this topic actually quite some time ago um, is probably gained speed, so to speak, um, with recent developments. But, um, you know, I also am aware of other sectors and other organisations that are still very much just in that almost pathological um, maturity phase where it's just blissful ignorance or outright denial. Um, I think most organisations, <clears throat> excuse me, most organisations are probably sitting in that, you know, not quite compliant space. They're aware there's an issue. They're probably aware that they need to do more about it and they're just not that clear on what it is exactly that they need to do. So I think, you know, if you've started that journey where it's on your radar and you're starting to think about it as a safety hazard and you're starting to, you know, integrate it into that perspective, that's a good position to be in. You need to move fast, though. As I said, if you are at 12 months or 24 months from now and you still have this sitting under a sort of HR umbrella, you're still engaged in those very typified, non-trauma-informed practices around that, then um, that's going to get you in trouble uh, 
in the health and safety regulation front. Yeah. Um, and then looking ahead, um, sort of thinking, you know, in the next 12 to 24 months, what do you expect to happen um, in, the, in this sort of sexual harassment space during that period of time? Look, you know, we've, I think COVID has really sort of produced the bingo card that many of us didn't think we'd be playing the last few years and it's still a little unpredictable as to exactly how that will um, divert our attention, so to speak. That aside, um, I think that we're going to see continuing attention with it. I think that the regulation side of things is really ramping up and it's, and it's coming through thick and fast now we're seeing other developments occurring. So the banning of insurance, for example, is starting to filter through as well, which was another one of the Boland um, recommendations. So, and I think as it becomes front and centre, and then we're, we're seeing the safety profession is, is really, you know, taking it and, and, and kind of putting it under their um, wing and they're starting to push forward with agendas in that, um, in that respect. So I, I think it's going to ramp. And, you know, whether it ramps extraordinarily quickly or just at a very steady pace, I think that's a little bit contingent on some other external, um, you know, kind of drivers. But I do think that any organisation that thinks that they can just park this issue and look at it again in a couple of years, that would be a really, really poor approach in my view. Yeah, okay. So um, sounds like um, what we will be seeing hopefully for um, safety teams in larger organisations is actually um, probably much more diverse safety teams in terms of um, backgrounds and, and experience and sort of um, skill sets to actually be able to be across the um, the, the different hazards and mm. um, sort of clusters of hazards, I guess, that, that will be coming through with, um, with the new regs. So that's an interesting space to watch as well. And to see how we go with this whole working with HR kind of um, mm. Enigma. So there's been some conversations around that. Um, and to reiterate what I hope I've made clear in, in, in other discussions around this, I think that the ideal scenario is a collaboration between HR and safety when it comes to psych health and safety. I think that that's the ideal environment. Um, both professions bring some unique um, skills and expertise to the table. And I think to solve relatively complex problems, it takes that sort of not even just a bidisciplinary approach. I think we actually really need um, transdisciplinary. You know, we need people who are across, you know, psychology, HR, um, work design things, risk, uh, legalities, the IR um, frameworks, business mm. risk, um, you know, and bringing it up a level all the way into ESG, you know, and we need to be working on the problems ideally together and and coming up with effective solutions. So um, that's another thing I would say is, again, if, you're, if you've got still got that siloed approach where there's stuff sitting just under safety and there's stuff sitting just under HR and you haven't really started those conversations, that's something you really need to get on um, and, and, and get cracking with in the next, say, 12 months um, because I think it's going to be very difficult to move agendas forward if we haven't got that. Um, either the collaboration established or it's going to sit under a particular home and ideally that should be safety that the jurisdiction is awarded there and they're on you know they're on with it they've got their objectives and they've got their um, you know pathway to carve so I think clarity around that really needs to be achieved probably in the next six months or so by the end of the year you need to be clear 
sexual harassment, bullying, psych health and safety stuff, have we got enough of a safety um, and risk management perspective on it? If we haven't, why not? And if we haven't got HR and safety working together as a minimum, again, why not? And somebody needs to take control of it. And if that has to be safety, um, then safety can step up. And they are building, you know, capability in the space pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, again, I think that that journey will continue across the safety profession in building that psych health and safety expertise. Safety now does look different to what it did maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, and I think psych health and safety is really going to be, it's here to stay and it's going to be a pretty clear focus for quite some time. Mm. Interesting thoughts, Rebecca, and um, thank you for, for sharing those with our listeners. I hope that they heed your words well um, and take steps accordingly. Um, so thank you so much for joining us on this special episode. It was lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Beck. Thank you again for, for having me. And again, congratulations. Great work. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, so now we'd love to welcome Wade Needham in. Uh, Wade's a repeat guest, most recently appearing in a live panel event for episode number 54, Beyond ROI, How Psych Health and Safety Creates Social Impact. And that was released on September 9, 2021. So over six months ago, it feels like a lot, not that much time has passed. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, it's weird. Um, lots of, lots of time and no time. Yeah. At the same time. But yeah, no, great to have you on, Wade. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah. So this is what counting, uh, this is number four, I think the fourth time uh, that you've been on, because we've done two live panels together, which one that you moderated very, very well, I might add. Um, and then the, you were on the second episode ever that we recorded. You're our first guest on the podcast. Be back. <laughs> yeah, no, it's nice to, to continue to have something to share. Yeah. So um, last time you were on, we were really covering this idea of social impact. So the S under ESG. Um, and I guess for guests and listeners who I guess want to learn more about ESG and, and uh, this, how safety kind of fits underneath that, for a broader explanation of that topic, that uh, episode number 54 would be a good one to go back to. Uh, but what I'd really like to talk about, Wade, is, um, you know, there's obviously a continually growing interest in ESG as boards are meeting investor desire that they operate sustainable and ethical companies. So while there is a large focus, I think everyone can see that on environmental sustainability and even governance. Have you, any, have you seen any more movement since we last caught up regarding the S uh, in, in the ESG? Um, yeah, thanks, Jason. And I think one of the most pleasing things is that we have seen some some increases in the the reporting in the in the social side of things. It hasn't just been all either environmental traffic, and I think that sort of reflects this greater understanding of materiality. And really, for for those that are listening, materiality is really something that reflects both the organisation's significant in economic, environmental, and social impacts, but also what substantively influence the assessments of decisions of stakeholders. So we're seeing more and more of that. And, and Rebecca spoke about how sexual harassment is affecting share price and capital markets. And so investors are becoming more sophisticated through leveraging tools such as ESG indices, and that's better informing um, uh, how people are allocating capital. So 
Um, I think that's a real big positive that we are seeing, but we're also seeing people become more sophisticated and we're seeing some organisations shift, for example, when reporting under GRI 403 standard on health and safety, we're seeing more people um, get outside of the, the, the standard TRIFA reporting and starting to include more reporting in the areas of 403-3 in the Oc Health Services, but even more pleasing, actually seeing some content that used to be in the Occupational Health Services now making its way courtesy of 45,003 and some, some new legislation around risk management in psychosocial risk into actually um, the disclosure 403-2, which is about hazard um, identification, risk assessment and incident investigation. So that's, it's really good to see. And I think we'll see more of it as, as this becomes more of interest to consumers. Um, and they not only want to see provenance stories in the environmental space, but also they want to see more past and not just around modern slavery. They want to see living wage. They want to, they want to see how people, um, you know, how are their consumables or products that they're buying? How are the people, what is the story behind it? Not just the environmental impacts and, and the environments they're made in. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, even as recently as this week, I saw that the ILO uh, have voted to include health and safety as a fundamental human working right. Um, yep. So right up there with, like you say, the abolition of child labour and, yep. and whatnot. So, And that's got major impacts because that then becomes part of free trade agreements and that brings it upon um, discussions, but also that brings it into light around um, when different trade blocks are negotiating and there's different disparagement of standards. And, and so that is one great fear of mine is sustainability will be used as the, the new trade block barrier to prevent certain economies and regions from not being able to trade in areas because they may have a less mature process or, or, or less sophisticated process to manage risk. Um, but also those, those, those regions certainly do need income. And that's what we saw in, in relation to the Atlassian decision to, to pull out of um, Ukraine and, and the challenges, even when you have government regulations and, and, you know, and, and those types of things. It's, it's difficult for companies to navigate because there's multiple byproducts you have to both you know, um, meet the government of the day's needs, but also secondly, you have to meet employees' needs. So the diverse management of how people thread the needle and stakeholders is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned um, before around uh, reporting and, and using the GRI uh, 3 and 2, like you, like you mentioned. Um, so what role does this kind of measurement play in maybe elevating psychological health and safety specifically up to board and even shareholder level, yeah. um, as well as, you know, health and safety more generally? Yeah, and, and it's a good question. And one of the things that listed entities now um, have to grapple with is there's multiple ESG indices that measure and give scores to investors and fund managers that they have to provide reporting to. So this, this culmination of, of sort of um, the aggregation of data and standards that people are measured to is positive. And I think the, the more people are using, the, for example, either the, the GRI or the SASB, um, the greater levels of transparency and reporting against those standards, the higher levels of scores um, organisations are able to achieve. And, and I think the big thing for me is that often um, organisations are choosing which of the disclosures to actually disclose against, and it's still um, acceptable to not disclose against all of them. Um, and also not be audited to all of them as well. So that's the other thing to keep in mind. So the, the more and more I want to see is, is things like reporting against, um, you know, the, the 403 disclosure 10, which is work-related ill health, 
So we need to start that process, and often that is is solely around exposure to, to occupational um, hygiene-type dust um, chemicals. Those types of reports find their way in, but not so much psychosocial risks that eventuate in psychological harm. So I think that's the, the first area we'll come through and, and positive to see the reporting requirements coming into the, the Victorian led or proposed in relation to that area. So that hits both at a social impact perspective, but also under a governance perspective as legislation and expectations of, of, of um, uh, the, the regulators change. So more and more over time, I see greater reporting um, that affecting investors' decisions, but secondly, also in heat, that will also affect consumers' decisions as well. Yeah, well, I, I think the future is uh, really interesting in this space, Wade, as we've spoken about a number of times before off-air. Um, obviously, there's different reasons why a company might be interested in psych health and safety from purely the, the moral reason to the legal and, like we're saying, the incoming regulations in Australia specifically, meeting their, their legal obligations, and then also um, you know, looking at ROI. Uh, but we know that ROI um, uh, information that we've got hasn't really moved the needle in terms of companies becoming more psychologically healthy. Um, the legislation one, we're hoping a bit more of this carrot, as we'll talk about with our next guest, might um, actually move the needle a little bit. Um, but then, yeah, I think this one, the sustainability one, is is something that is really um, gathering steam in in, uh, in a really positive direction for how companies are governed. Yeah, and I think we are seeing... Um, people will pay a premium for either for what we call high claims type either goods or services where there is that transparency through the value chain or supply chain um, right from either in food from from paddock to plate or it might be from you know where, where um, raw materials are sourced right through the production so we we know scope three is the biggest issue to, that is in discussion with a lot of boards at the moment wouldn't it be great to understand and and we could take the concept of shared duties of care which are enshrined in legislation and, and, and really, it's not that far of a hop jump to sort of scope one, two, and three, right? It's a very similar concept. Um, and, we, and we do know that, um, you know, within the next three to five to 10 years, this will become a growing um, area of emergence as we um, assuming and hopeful that we start um, doing making these key changes on the environmental side, because that's the beautiful thing about health is that if you don't have a balance of environmental health, people health and, and animal health, you actually don't have health at a global scale. Um, and, and, you know, depending on which way you subscribe to, the pandemic was a very good example of how, you know, something can jump from the animal health side to affect um, the, the human health area. So um, that's a concept I think will grow more and more, that integrative type thinking. Well, uh, Wade, uh, as always, you've kind of uh, opened up our eyes to some, you know, even broader issues than what we got you on to discuss. Uh, I think you're very good at doing that. So, uh, look, thank you so much for not only coming on today and, and sharing some, you know, future kind of insights about what to look for, um, I guess, around the ESG and sustainability angles, but also for all the previous times that you've been on the podcast You'd say that you're actually the first friend of the podcast, given that you're our first guest um, and uh, you're a very good friend of the podcast. So thanks, Wade, so much for, uh, you know, what you've been able to share with our listeners over the over the journey of our 100 episodes. Yeah, happy to congratulations on the 100 and here's to the next 100. Thanks, mate. Take care. Thanks, Wade. So we have Peter Kelly um, with us today on our 100th episode as well. So Peter is um, another repeat guest. So he's featured... Um, 
initially in episode three, Management Standards Past, Present and Future, which was released on the 5th of February, 2021. How are you going today, Pete? G'day, Alicia. How are you? Not too bad, as per usual. Have you recovered from paying my bill at that dinner date we had in Melbourne a few months ago? (laughs) Did I pay your bill? I think you paid my bill. No, I think Jason paid the bill for both of us. Maybe it was one each. Right. Yes, that was, when was that? February, time flies. It was, yeah, absolutely. So we'll jump in to uh, um, all things psych health and safety. So um, Pete works at the Health uh, Health and Safety Executive. So that's uh, Britain's uh, national regulator for health and safety in the workplace. Um, So, Pete, how is the executive positioning itself to regulate uh, psych health and safety in the UK? Oh, geez, that's a great question, isn't it? The same as we were doing 23 years ago, but uh, with a lot more vigour, I think would be a good description. We've just launched our next 10-year strategy and we've put uh, health um, as a top priority, specifically um, the management of work-related stress and depression and anxiety in workplaces. Um, So that kind of gives you a foundation stone on which we can sort of move out and start doing the work we should have been doing 20 years ago, which is a a degree of regulatory activity. Um, I don't know about you, Alicia, but I think in this area, um, for for a long time, there's been an enormous carrot, probably like a bunch of carrots. uh, and, And at times people have just sort of taken it for granted that regulators won't interact or intervene in this area well um we we definitely have to we definitely have to intervene and now you know what i mean so what does uh, when you mentioned intervening what does that look like what's the future for the regulatory environment um in the uk and i think the the, the, the regulatory environment will be uh, will be twofold one will be encouraging people to manage psychological health and safety and to address stress. And two, we will um, use the regulatory powers that we have. Um, if the cases come along where, where we feel there's, that there's a general sense that we could intervene. Um, we did issue a notice recently. Um, we will issue notices um, if the circumstances are right. Um, as you may or may not be aware, our regulations require that under the Health and Safety at Workers Act, that you actually um, manage all risks of health and safety, not, I didn't say, put in the act, excluding psychological issues. Um, and then there is a requirement under the management regs to do a risk assessment. So that's the first bit of legislation. And there's a requirement under Reg 5 to do something about the identified risks. Um, so um, we would expect people to do the requirements of the, of the act. Um, I've trained most of the inspectors in the last eight years on how to take a case. I'm confident that um, if the right cases come in, then we will we will do as we've done recently and issue a notice. Uh-huh. And this is just this is not just the UK going alone on this. I know in Australia they're keen to uh, issue notices, and the Victorian legislation will facilitate some of that work. Um, Queensland, Western Australia, you know, everyone's jumping in. Um, Canada uh, have uh, been looking at it and also, you know, conversations in the States. So I'd like to, it's almost parallel in what it was like with asbestosis, you know, 
uh-huh. there was a necessity we we had to intervene because asbestosis was um you know was effectively creating masses of ill health and, and people were dying from it uh, you know for us at 17.8 million days lost to work-related stress and 828,000 people off um you know as a regulator you have to intervene it's the the primary occupational health condition and it accounts for 57 percent of all sickness absence uh-huh. so so you have already issued notices you go in and um intervene and then you say you know this is what needs to happen so you can meet the the standards um yeah. do you think that um organizations in the uk are clear on what they need to do practically in order to prevent harm um they're becoming clearer Mm-hmm. I think um, it's an amazing what actually um, a notice does in terms of waking alertness in the sector that you issue the notice in. Suddenly everyone becomes acutely aware of what, what is the requirement. Um, we are running a campaign at the moment, um, which is for the next two two years called no, it's Working Minds. And it's exclusively about uh, the five hours respond, react, uh, record and, uh, and make it routine to have conversations. So that's a soft touch. It's And the five R's are the five steps of risk assessment. We've just reworded them to make it easier for people to understand from a brand. You know, that's what I, I think that's what we all different regulators have to do is to, ha- is to be aware of how they brand their information, make it understandable to the, to the to people that are in the workforce uh, and not some sort of scientific loving if you know what I mean. So, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the legislation can be quite uh, dry and vague. So that's that's kind of what's happened in Australia. So especially in Victoria, as you mentioned, um, there's there's changes coming to the legislation because it's been quite, you know, um, health and safety, you know, employers have an obligation to keep their work environments um, healthy and safe. So historically, that's been more uh, focused in terms of what organisations have been doing, focused on physical health um, and not so much on psychological health. Um, but the so the regulator in Victoria, uh, WorkSafe, um, they've basically um, put in regulations that are coming um, to stipulate, um, you know, what that actually looks like, what employers should be doing to uh prevent psychological harm because if you just are aware of the Work Health Safety Act and OHS guidelines, um, they're not specific enough. So like you're saying, that's um, you know, a big education piece around and using the language that people understand. As you know, when I was back in February, I met with them and we had that exact conversation. Um, you know, obviously um over the course of the last 20 years, in terms of regulatory activity, I've I've been involved in 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 most of the cases that we've taken. So um, it, the basic principles from 20 years ago are exactly the same now. Yeah. Um, and we have to uh, have to realize that uh, actually the it isn't just a, a nice to like to, it's an absolute fundamental of health and safety um, is that you manage the uh, the level of demands and the control and, uh, and support and role relationship and change elements which are part of our management stand as standard if you manage them you're in you're in a, in a, in a, in a much better place and uh, i mean i've um i was and resistant to forty five thousand and three, if i'm honest at the start because i thought it's 
it's way too technical. 95 pages was the first standard and, and it didn't really hit the box. Um, as you know, I got involved uh, through, uh, through the committee structure. Um, and I think in 45,003, if I'm going to go into an organization, a large organization, and they've identified stress, then 45,003 would actually facilitate Reg 5 for me because it's a, a system for managing the identified risk. Uh -huh. um, so you could, and so if you had 45,003, I'm, I'm more confident that you're perhaps addressing it because the, the central question has always been, what does an intervention look like? Well, interventions are determined by the characteristics of the company, the, uh, the size, um, uh, amongst other things. And actually, um, until we do more activity in this area, we're, we're probably, um, we, we'll be, We'll be for the next few years looking at interventions and making assessments. I do think we, we're probably we could be five years off where we know what interventions potentially work because we'll have gone through activities that have forced people to do that. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. So in terms of um, you know how things are changing here, um, it's going to become clearer. Um, you know what actions organisations need to take to. Um, prevent harm and control um, the risks. So um, with what you're doing, um, you, you mentioned the campaign that's going ahead. Are there any psychological health or psychological health and safety regulations um, in place at the moment that stipulate what yeah. organisations have to do? Well, we use the, the outline from the 1974 Act, the Health and Safety Work Act, uh -huh. the management rank, those alone of the regulatory environment that we work in but we have we have um done significant work around the um around stress and mental health to make people aware of what our expectations are to give them as much information as we can so things like talking toolkits um the, the new campaign uh so what we're saying to people is um you know our expectation is that you as an employer as with forty-five thousand and one, as with the many um, uh, systems that are out there for health and safety uh, you, you you need to be you need to be aware of that uh -huh. yeah yeah i'm just hearing um there's a framework in place or there's um guidance and direction um in terms of what organizations need to do and you're working more on um you know educating organizations on on what this looks like so that there's more awareness yeah. rather than they get a notice and they didn't know what they had to do from more of a I, perspective. I, I would probably say, listen, after the pandemic, if you're not aware of mental health, then you must have had your head in the sand, um, you know, because actually the pandemic um, has changed the, the narrative of work. Um, and, you know, we're now scrabbling around for something we should have been on top of, which was hybrid working. Uh -huh, uh -huh. years ago we should have been on top of it um and but now we're like well what does hybrid working look like what's this what's that agreement um you know i i think the time for a soft touch ha has been and gone um and i don't i and i think they you'll find an appetite am um amongst regulators go globally this is that we have to intervene um you know, we are looking at global 
numbers across every every major continent is having issues on work-related stress and mental health. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, everyone is aware there is a need both to, to offer a large bunch of carrots, but the occasional stick. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess the take-home message is, um, you know, there are um, regulations um, across the globe um, and there's more and more traction in implementing those regulations and having um, regulators actually um, give organisations notice if they're not um, meeting and, and as regulators, we as regulators, we do talk. And we, you know, we have teams meetings and, you know, there is that cross fertilization um, because I think it's, I think it's important um, uh, to, to, to build up knowledge so that we, we know what a good case looks like. Uh, and that. so, um, uh, you know, I mean, the, some will blame the recession and say, oh, well, I can't do things due to the recession. Recessions come every 10 years. Um, a global pandemic happens about once every 100 years but what we do know from the previous pandemic and what we're seeing is is we have a uh, a significant increase in uh you know mental health issues so 25 percent increase in depression and anxiety globally of of which if you look at the workforce between 16 and and 65 or 67 if you're from the uk a large proportion of that 25% increase will be in those in that environment. So therefore, do we just simply ignore it and put it in the too hard category? Or do we actually be active in the area? I'm, I'm of the opinion we have to be active in the area. We can no longer ignore this um, because it, it will be and is the it is the new asbestos. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's shifting around, from you know. it's shifting from um not having awareness, being reactive to um, being proactive and, and focusing on prevention. Yeah, definitely. Okay, thanks. We yeah. uh, won't take up any more of your time because I know you have another conference to get to this morning. So thank, thank you, you for popping in again um, and we will speak to you again, I'm sure. All right, so I'm very excited now to introduce our next guest, Hayley Farrell. She appeared in episode 53 adopting the ISO 45003 standard and that episode was released on September 6, 2021. How are you Hayley and welcome again. Thanks Joelle, good to be back. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? We're doing all right, trucking along. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as always. Yes, yes, lots lots on the go but um, it's it's mostly good. it's all good it's all good it's all good um good so Hayley since you last appeared on the podcast and you were talking about the process of um I guess implementing 45,003 and what that was like since then you've gone through the process of actually becoming accredited through BSI or the unofficial accreditation or whatever it is that they call it um what did that process look like Yeah, I think BSI are quite specific about the wording. So, yeah, it is an unaccredited standard, but we have been certified to the scheme. So that's that's what the process is at the moment. Um, But, yeah, it's been quite an interesting process, I guess, in terms of of 
the standard landing on your desk, you know, reading it, understanding it, going through the process of having an external gap analysis, um, trying to understand how you can plug any of those gaps, then going through a management system audit, and then actually going through the practical audit in terms of does your occupational health and safety management system actually do what it says it does. So really interesting process. And I think if I reflect a couple of months on, the consistent agile nature of the standard and the consistent learning, you know, in terms of new challenges, new risks, new needs in terms of employee-based colleagues that arise that you kind of have to keep adapting to. So it's been a really interesting journey and one that we're still very much in the beginning phases of um, as an organization and I think as a collective as well. Yeah, so I think that's um, that's a very important point you raised there that it's not just a sort of set and forget, um, you know, type of standard. It is something that you need to keep coming back to and, and you know, those processes are there to be um, that sort of cyclical process of continual improvement. Absolutely. It's so important. So what were the main reasons that MCOR had for becoming accredited? So quite early on, we adopted 27500, which, all is a, which is around the human-centered organization. And it's about putting people at the heart of decision-making. And as an organization that doesn't have um, particular assets or the things that we can sell, our people are our assets, you know, and we go and we service our clients' buildings and facilities, et cetera. Um, we also have quite a strong social value and sustainability agenda in terms of how do we ensure that we are giving back to the community, but in doing so, you know, look after your own first, and that kind of naturally and organically will filter out into the community as well. So with both of those in mind, we decided to go for 45,003 to complement our 45,001 management system. And I think it was just really important for us to, again, verify that what we were doing in the well-being space was the right thing, but also to identify how we can improve. And I think for me, the conversation in terms of well-being has, has moved on somewhat. You know, we were talking about apple baskets and, and yoga, which I talk about as kind of the promotional tertiary um, element of well-being but then the well-being strategy kind of needs to expand in terms of intervention which is secondary but then this prevention piece which is a primary in intervention essentially and this is for me where psych health and safety fits um, so it's about expanding your well-being strategy and I think that's where we we really saw an opportunity to to do something a bit more different and to start addressing workplace risks that are having a negative impact on employees so that we can mitigate that wherever possible um, and not just promote good self-management of well-being without eliminating risks that are not enabling people to do those good things. Yeah, okay. So it was it was very much aligned to, I guess, your sort of core um, business strategy and, and values, I guess, your, your corporate values in terms of putting people first. Absolutely. We went through a rebranding as well in terms of our purpose, a better world at work and our values. So it was all part of, I suppose, the evolution of 
mid-pandemic, how do we come out of this and how do we make something that's sustainable and that's going to be sustainable change over time? And that was all part of our thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so given that you're now sort of through that that process of implementing an, an accreditation um, and you're, you know, one of the first companies in, in the world to have gone through that process, um, do you have hints or tips that you can or that you'd like to share with listeners who are thinking about going through that process? Absolutely. I think I think when you look at, um, and one of the previous guests actually spoke about it right in the beginning, you know, it's a 94 to 97 page document and there are some seismic words in there that can be quite overwhelming. And to understand how you integrate 45,003 into your existing wellbeing strategy, I think what's really important and to make clear is that it doesn't replace all the work that you're doing because there seems to be some confusion that 45,003 is now the focus in terms of just taking a risk-based approach. As I've already mentioned, it's part of your well-being strategy. So when you're looking at that document and you're, you're seeing the big words like psychological health and safety and psychosocial risk, it's important, and this is a tip um, that can be really helpful, is to to use the language that you use within your organization to talk about mental health and well-being. Um, the word psychosocial risk might put a lot of people off. You know, risk management might put a lot of people off because we're talking about well-being. So it's about language. Um, it's also about, for me, when you are wanting to implement something like this and get leadership buy-in, understand what the leadership's pain points are and what language the leaders speak, such as, is it risk management? Is it sustainability? Is it social value? Is it corporate social responsibility? And use that as leverage to be able to, to build your business case as to why um, 45,003 is going to enable you to be progressive in the well-being space. Um, and I also think talking around leadership the understanding that this isn't a once-off certification, you know, it, it can't be something that you you get and you put on the shelf and say, right, I'm accredited to 45,003. There is going to be investment over time. The more we get into the space, um, the more risks and hazards that are identified, there might be a need for further investment. So it's about understanding that right from the get-go, I guess, why are we doing this? Are we doing it to make authentic change or are we doing it just because we want to align our management systems? But again, it's then just a management system. It's not we're doing what we say we do type thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's a good learning um, even sort of more broadly around you know, understanding the mental models of, of the groups that you're talking to and um, finding a way to explain these sort of new concepts or ideas um, in a way that fits into their existing mental models. Um, and then it's a much easier um, sell, if you like. Um, so that's a, that's a great tip. And, and certainly, yeah, it's, uh, it's not a set and forget um, type of an approach um, as, as with a safety management system as well. If it's going to be effective, you need to um, keep working away at it consistently. Absolutely. And I think um, just furthermore, safety and where does it sit? You know, we're talking about occupational health and safety systems. And I think collaboration in terms of 
an organization adopting this is really, really important and making sure that key stakeholders from, from HR to your EDI lead to your supply chain partners are all on board with what we're trying to do, as well as potentially your business continuity manager and change and improvement managers, because all of these things impact your people. You know, supply chain will have a psychological health and safety impact and therefore get them on board early and and really make sure that the understanding of what we're trying to achieve is, is a collaborative approach. It's not something that's being done to. We're doing this together. Um, I think is is really important. Yep. So collaboration is a strong theme coming through from our guests so mm. far today. Mm-hmm. Haley, thank you so much for joining us today on our special episode. It's been lovely to uh, to catch up with you again, and um, and thank you for sharing those great tips uh, with our listeners. Thanks, Joel. Take care. Thanks, Jason. Okay, it's time to bring in our next guest. Um, David Burrows appeared in episode 83, When Everyone is an Expert. It was released on February 22 this year. And you know what? It's actually our third most listened to episode at the moment. Um, the only one that's, oh, there's only two that's beating it. Um, Alicia, you want to have a guess of what they are? Is it still number one, Joelle's initial episode? Yeah. Sure it is. Yeah. Just yep. me and Joelle, number one. Yep. 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 And then number two? Number two. Oh, tough one. It wouldn't be. Tony hasn't come up the ranks, has he? Uh, Tony Tony's still number two. Tony is still oh, is number two. Yeah. yeah, but David is. David's nipping at his heels. He's close. He's catching up at a rate of <laughs> Closing knots. that gap. Can I probably... just say, they're, they're worthy adversaries. I'm happy for you guys to be winning, and I'm more than happy for Tony to be sitting in front of me. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> but, uh, David, uh, your episode has gone down a tree. definitely resonated very well with our listener group um, and throughout LinkedIn. You had some very choice uh, clips that we were able to extract from the conversation with you. Um, but I guess um, today I'd like to ask you um, a question around the misinformation that's out regarding the psych health and safety area. Um, I guess as the market and the appetite for this type of work increases, the misinformation we can only anticipate will also probably increase. So in your opinion, what are the biggest mental health fictions organisations should be aware of? I think that's a great question. And and yes, it is happening and it's going to happen more. And I think some of the reasons why it is happening is that organisations haven't necessarily kept up with what all the research has been telling us for quite some period of time. And, and when we look at so many organisations have been focused on deficit-based models or injury-centrist models or medicalised models rather than psychosocial models, there's now a heck of a lot of catch-up. When you see a situation like that, then there's some huge appetite within corporates to sort of digest mental health-related services. We often see sort of people rushing towards what are the solutions, what are the things that we can sell and, and whatnot in this space. So there's a fair bit of misinformation out there at the moment. I think there's a fair bit of sort of uh, fear-mongering around what's involved in psychosocial risk, for example, and, and whatnot that, that I'm seeing sort of, you know, pop up across across the industries right now. So if I look at sort of what I think some of the biggest issues are is still this notion that when we're looking at these things, it's around fixing people rather than fixing workplaces. That if we just have people with enough mental illness literacy, then we've done our job when it comes to uh, a psychologically healthy and, and safe workplace. But I think a lot of these things are driven through just the lack of understanding from the people who are procuring these services around what's actually required to what's actually required to do this do this work well. Um, 
I think there's a huge knowledge gap there at the moment. We it's the first time in my career I've seen the sophistication of regulators significantly exceed the sophistication within a lot of organisations with codes of practice around psychosocial hazards and you know ISOs and those sorts of things. I think there's a, there's a lot of catch up happening and there's a there's a really big scramble. I think and some of the things we're seeing in that space is people desperately trying to call their tertiary based initiatives preventative initiatives desperately trying to shoehorn the things they're doing into a preventative model when at best they are reactive and, and support based yeah definitely seen plenty of that of ourselves uh, a lot of solutions looking for problems to fix um rob Bryan spoke really well to that about the importance of diagnosis and actually getting solutions that deal with the problems in your organization i'm a big fan of rob he's on my um my list of people to to follow that I share with people all the time around who I think is doing great work in this space. Yeah, uh, for those listeners um, who haven't listened to the Rob Briner episode, it was a recent one. Mm. It's definitely worth a listen if you haven't to haven't already. Um, so, Dave, what are the most important facts organisations should instead be focused on? The important facts they should be focused on. Yeah, instead of like some of these myths that are you know, going around the traps. Yeah, the workplace mental health is about fixing people. It's not about fixing people, it's about fixing work. It's around understanding that people's experience of work is the determinant of mental health outcomes as well as performance and productivity as well. And I think that is the biggest one that people need to get their head around. It's uh, the, the idea that we just need to provide more support is really flawed. We really need to be looking upstream. So the fact is if work is designed poorly, if people's work exceeds the demands of them, exceeds their resources, their capacity to manage, if they don't have role clarity, if they're you know, going through mismanaged organisational change, it's going to create enormous amounts of stress and strain that no resilience program or no EAP is going to be able to fix. So I think from a factual perspective, the more that organisations can actually look beyond um, EAP, resilience, those sorts of things to really focus on those things that are critical around psychosocial risk design of work that's where the, the people really need to be really need to be paying attention and i think a lot of this is really perhaps changing who we're listening to and and where we're getting our information from around workplace mental health because it's been very much a, a provider driven market for a very long period of time yeah and going back to the uh, solutions and people rushing to develop solutions for this new field that they've heard of for the first time this psychosocial risk management or psychological health and safety uh there's a lot of um yeah a lot of interesting providers trying to get into the market we saw a uh, interesting quote on our website saying that iso 45003 will be enforced by the regulators uh, even though it's a voluntary standard and there's a really great quote on that website from carla kapanekia yeah carla yeah yeah <laughs> um so Car unless carla's got a sister um who who's who parent... also talks about cake and icing <laughs> i think there might have been a, a typo so yeah just be um just be wary well, and if you're not if you're not sure reach out to dave i've got his mobile number i'll give it to you <laughs> uh, i've seen everything sold from this is the nasa based psychodrama program that will make your staff more resilient to gut health is the single answer that you need to actually provide for anyone who's experiencing executive stress. I've seen major organisations use um, uh, sporting medical doctors to do reviews of their psychological health and safety infrastructure with the only solution they've been put forward to is we need to promote the EAP more. So I think we've got to be really careful. Some of these things are fundamentally dangerous. 
they, they don't just take away from um, and remove resources from those people who might actually need it, but they, they can legitimately do more harm. So I think that notion of understanding how work can be a protective factor for people's mental health and wellbeing, understanding the psychological health benefits of work, understanding psychosocial hazards in work is really important, and understanding the importance of things like job design. Uh, things that there's so much research literature to support those if organisations aren't orienting towards those things and they're focusing on all the other stuff that's just really shiny, they're going to get themselves into strife. Yeah, wise words and so articulate again, Dave. I reckon we could easily do the 100th episode just with you. But um, we, <laughs> we how, really how to pre- win friends and influence people, not by me. That's uh, <laughs> how well, to paint look- a massive target on your back. Um, <laughs> this is the joys of being 50 years old and at the twilight of one's career is you get to speak independently across the industry um, in ways that perhaps other people aren't necessarily happy to happy to speak up around, speak yeah. up with. Well, mate, we really uh, value you. We value the time that you've given us today again. Um, we know you're a very busy man. So thank you very much for joining us for our 100th. And uh, we'll hopefully have you on, on a panel or something in the, in, the, uh, in the next year. No worries at all. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Bye-bye. So it's a pleasure to introduce our next special guest all the way from Canada. So we have Marianne Bainton uh, joining us today. So Marianne first appeared in episode 10, The Canadian Evolution, which aired on February the 22nd last year. So uh, Marianne does a lot of work um, in the psych health and safety field, and she's also the host of our sister podcast, Psych Health and Safety in Canada. Thanks for joining us today, Marianne. Thanks a lot, Alicia. So am I like a recurring character in your <laughs> in your story? I'm a much loved recurring character. Absolutely. Yeah. Only only the characters that we love to have on the on the podcast, Marianne. Okay. That's good. That's good. Thanks. So um how I have I've heard some um uh Psych Health and Safety in Canada podcast episodes. How are you finding hosting the podcast over in Canada? It's like hanging out with my friends. Uh-huh. So, and, and even the people, because there's been several people on the podcast who I'd never met before, but just fascinating to hear their stories, to hear, because psych health and safety really is the way we treat each other at work. That's all it is. But you can look at it from so many different angles and every workplace is a little different. And so each workplace needs a different way to approach it. So I've been loving learning from people and being inspired by people and forming relationships and starting new projects. Yeah, it's been a great experience. Yeah, yeah. So lots of learning and networking and just, um, you know, getting, getting psych health and safety out there in Canada. Um, and understanding, you know, different contextual factors in different organizations and what their needs are. Awesome. So if you haven't uh, joined um, or followed that podcast listeners, um, get onto it, Psych Health and Safety in Canada. Um, So I'm going to ask you, Marianne, so um, Canada is seen as a world leader in um, psychological health and safety. I think um, that that phrase or that terminology was coined in Canada. Um, So it was largely... Uh, as a result of the work yourself and your colleagues have done in developing the National Standard of Canada in psych health and safety at work. How have you seen um, the standard being adopted since its release um, in Canada and both internationally? 
Mm-hmm. So next year, it'll be 10 years mm. since it was released. Mm-hmm. There's been over 50,000 downloads of the standard by different governments, healthcare sector, education, and other types of businesses all around the world. So it's it's really been taken up by people who honestly have been doing this stuff for decades, but they didn't call it psych health and safety. They called it respect in the workplace. They called it performance, engagement. Um, They called it recruitment and retention. They called it inclusion or diversity. They called it team building, but it's all the same thing, right? As I said before, it's how we interact with each other, how we treat each other in the workplace, but getting it sort of crystallized um, as psychological health and safety, understanding the process to think about the impact that we have on each other, um, I think is what the standard did. And you know, it's funny that you say um, Canada's a leader because we were very much inspired by what Australia did and what the UK did. And so uh, it's wonderful for me that we have been able to really connect uh, around the globe with folks like yourself, because I think together we're raising the bar for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a good point. So I think um, when when psych health and safety, um, it's the terminology um, that, that really came, you know, was about 10 years ago, and it's more been globally adopted since then. So, so we thank you for your contributions. And um, yeah, it's a united front, isn't it? We're all trying to achieve the same thing um, and really just create awareness and educate on what is, uh, you know, what does that mean and what is best practice in this space? So um, you mentioned it is your uh, 10th birthday next year since the standard um, was born. So what do you see as uh, challenges um, regarding the standard in terms of how it's um, adopted and rolled out? So I know you, you said you know, lots of people know about it now and it's been downloaded. Um, what are some challenges in maybe implementing? I think some of the challenges are people thinking you need to take on the standard and do all of it. And it's overwhelming and there's so many other priorities in workplaces and people get stuck. And the um, thing that we've been trying to say is if you just simply ask the question, how will this policy, this program, this initiative, this change, this meeting, this interaction, this team um, approach, how will these potentially impact the psychological health and safety of our employees, you can begin the journey to psychological health and safety and then refer to the standard when you feel like, okay, what should we do next? Rather than see, I have to complete the standard. And I look at it the way that we look at occupational health and safety. Nobody talks about the ROI of occupational health and safety. It's risk management. We're going to do it to protect our employees. And nobody talks about when we've implemented occupational health and safety because it's continual improvement. It's an ongoing journey to look at where we're at today, what risks might exist, and how we might mitigate those risks. 
So part of the challenge, I think, is redirecting people that it doesn't have to be so hard, that it doesn't have to be so big, but we can start right now by changing the way we think and changing the way we behave. And it's, it's as simple as that. And yet it's never going to be done and over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're good points. Um, when you think about an organization and there's different functional teams, say in HR, and they're doing things like you mentioned, um, respecting the workplace and diversity and inclusion, and they're all doing their own, I suppose, initiatives or work in those spaces. Psych health and safety is really about um, bringing those together and understanding it from a safety lens. Um, you know, um, are there any issues or risks, um, you know, within those factors? Um, and then what can we do collectively, collaboratively to mitigate those risks? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. So is there anything um, like a what's next in terms of the standard, seeing as though uh, a milestone decades passing? So the standard process here through the Canadian Standards Association is um, a consensus-based process where no one interest group, so not employers, not employees, not unions, not um, clinicians, not health and safety specialists, no one interest group can dominate. And we have to come to the table and agree. And this standard committee has been reconstituted and there are some amazing people that are on it now, people with very diverse experiences and very diverse knowledge that have come to the table. And whereas some uh, groups may go, "Uh uh-oh, they all have different perspectives, our feeling is this is great, we all have different perspectives, so together, we can do our best job. So some of the things that we're looking at is we feel that inclusion is part of every psychosocial factor, it should be. And so we're thinking about, do we need to add something more specific about inclusion? We've been talking about trauma in the workplace, whether it's vicarious trauma or um, trauma it, traumatic incidents that employees are involved in. And have we covered that well enough? So we're also looking at how can we respect and protect the work that's been done in the last decade? So we don't want to completely start all over where the people who have invested their time and effort go, oh, no, you know. But on the other hand, can we make it both more comprehensive and easier to use? Uh So that's that's really our goal. It's a big um, task, but over the next probably 18 months or so, we've got some very competent and eager people who are ready to take that on. And hopefully before the end of 2023, we can release a new and improved standard. Hmm, amazing. So yeah, those factors that you mentioned, um, inclusion and um, trauma um, or exposure to trauma in the workplace. I guess, you know, your current model is that 13 factor model, um, but it doesn't stop there. You've got the 14th, yeah. the 14th factor is kind of other factors that are, you know, specific to organizational contexts um, that won't necessarily apply to 
all organizations, but um, what we're seeing more and more is, you know, those factors that you mentioned um, apply to a lot of organizations. So how can, how can you, um, you know, um, demonstrate what needs to happen in those areas? Um, so maybe there'll be a, a 14th and a 15th defined. Well, factor. Alicia, I think it's so important what you brought forward is that the factor other, um, other issues as identified by the employees is critical. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people miss that one, mm -hmm. but it is the one that helps. And, you know, the other thing that we're looking at is how can we align? So it's Z1003 is the standard. How can we align it so that folks who are um, using the ISO 45,003, mm -hmm. if they use the Canadian standard, they will still be able to say they have complied with and aligned with ISO 45003 without having to do double work. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's exciting, a little daunting, but uh, I'm looking forward to what we can do. And so am I, and, I, and I'm sure the team is as well, um, just in this you know, united front in moving forward and how, how we can just address psych health and safety, like you say, in the most comprehensive but simplest way at the same time. It sounds all complicated, but um, when, you, when you think about it and what it all means, um, it doesn't have to be so complicated. No, there's many, many approaches that are five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes once a week that actually change the behaviors of leaders, of employees, of joint health and safety committees, of wellness committees that actually make the biggest difference rather than big programs um, that are paper exercises for mm -hmm. employers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it is. It's just, it's incorporating it into, into business as usual, isn't it? rather than yeah. having one-off activities, yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Erin. I'll let you go because I know it's a nighttime there in Canada and you probably hungry and need your dinner or the <laughs> time. I'm not sure exactly what the time is there. Um, thank you again for coming on um, and we will speak to you again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. It's always great to hear from our past guests. So a very big thank you to Beck, Wade, Peter, Haley, Dave and Marianne for joining us on this very special episode. So Joelle... Thinking back over our past 100 episodes, what have you enjoyed about doing the podcasts? Um, I think for me, it's been an opportunity to have um, some very unique conversations with um, some really interesting people and people with um, so much knowledge and experience to share. Um, and I think, you know, having the types of conversations and, and getting the types of insights that you really wouldn't get at like a conference event or um even just a, a workshop or a networking event or something like that. So I think, um, yeah, with, with a podcast format, there's sort of a level of intimacy in, in the conversation that you really don't get um, through other types of um, forums. Um, so that's, yeah, that's been great. Um, the, the thing that I've enjoyed the most, um, just getting to know um, so many different um, fantastic people. Yeah, cool. What about you, Alicia? Uh, similar to you, Joelle, it's, um, it's actually a really good opportunity. Um, it's not just, I mean, the goal of it is to create awareness of psych health and safety for everyone um, and what's, you know, what's 
best practice or what's required in the space or what are, what the challenges are. But it's really about even us just continuously learning from different um, experts in the field, from people working in particular industries, um, just learning from each other and, and growing the knowledge base, I suppose, in, in a format that's informal, like you're saying, it's we do um, have more of a chat, don't we? It's not, it's not formal um, and we can really get down into the nitty-gritties of it all. Mm. And Jason, what about you? And Jason. Yeah, I, I think our listeners can probably tell to work at People Diagnostics, you have to have a love of learning. Um, I think we're all like interested in, in learning and being at the top of our games and crafts. Um, and that's definitely, you know, been probably the biggest thing, right? Being able to speak to so many people and have uh, unrestricted access, you know, being able to ask the questions that we want, not just passively taking in a presentation or a, a webinar. Um, so I'm sure a lot of our listeners are very jealous of us, you know, being able to do that with the amazing guests. But more so than that, just even the ability for us to form relationships with um, our guests. I mean, if you, you think back to Marianne, you know, we met her on episode 10 of the podcast. That was the first time we ever met her. Mm. And now we have such a great relationship with Marianne. In fact, so so strong that she's now hosting our sister podcast in Canada. Um, and I've still never met her in person. It was uh, it all started from the podcast. And we've got some great friends that we've developed, you know, by initially just having them on the podcast to start mm. with. So I've loved that networking and relationship building, um, even you know, as much as the learning from amazing people. Yeah. Mm. Um, so let's think then ahead to our next. 100 episodes because we're going to get there pretty quickly, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it only took maybe, us. maybe not as quickly as last time because I don't think we're going to go back to doing um, recording three episodes a week. No, particularly now that we've got the, Can uh, the Canada and the USA podcast starting up shortly as well. Yep. We probably won't need to do three podcasts ourselves a week. No, people, people might struggle to keep up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're very keen to get content out there to begin with, but uh, once a week is a good cadence, I think, for our listeners and our own sanity. Yes. So I think we'll keep it at that. And Jack. <laughs> and Jack. <laughs> poor, <laughs> poor Jack. Um, so, Joelle, what, what do we have planned for our next 100 then? Yeah, so I think um, lots more um, episodes focused on case studies of, um, you know, how people have actually implemented psych health and safety um, in their organisations and, you know, sort of across different industries as well. So I think, um, yeah, one of our, our focuses is really going to be um, getting a lot more practical this year um, where and when we can. And obviously, um, you know, as guests come along who have something interesting to say, um, we're always going to be happy to have them on as well. But I think, yeah, a, a much bigger focus on on practical implementation. Yeah, because that's, that's the thing, right? We've had some amazing guests who come up from either deep subject matter expertise or academia, mm. um, but not enough really good practical examples. And people ask us all the time, right? Like, can you tell us a company that's doing this really well? Mm. And I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that's actually nailed it. Mm. Um, so we're, uh, and, and you can let our listeners in on what we've been working on to help fast track that as well. Um, but you know, that's, that's something that's missing and hopefully we can address that. Yeah. So with our, um, catalyst program that we'll be kicking off, um, within the next month, um, what we'll be doing is taking, um, 10 
um, Australian organisations um, and they're sort of across 10 different industries as well. Um, we'll actually be taking them through a full um, psych health and safety implementation process. Um, so looking at actually developing their um, psych health and safety management system um, right through to doing a, um, a first cycle of hazard identification, risk assessment and action planning. Um, so really getting into the practical um, nitty gritty of how do we actually do this um, within an organisation, um, helping them through that process, um, giving them opportunities to share with each other as a cohort group, so sort of as a group of peers. Um, and so as that program progresses, we'll hope to um, bring on some guests who are, who are going through that process to actually share um, their learnings with our listeners as well. Yeah, look, I've been really amazed at the interest in that Psych Health and Safety Catalyst program. Um, we kind of pulled it together really quickly, thinking, hey, this is a gap and this is a way that maybe we can address it. Um, so to have 10 really great companies as well um, wanting to participate is fantastic. And we're already getting a wait list for uh, early 2023 uh, Catalyst program as well. And even uh, mid-2023. <laughs> yeah, so people are now <laughs> booking on for the end of 2023. Yeah. Yep. So um, actually on that listeners, uh, we have done the, the current Catalyst program invite only through our own connections. Um, if you are interested and you're interested and you're in a large company, so 5,000 employees or more, um, you feel free to reach out to Joelle and myself if you want more interest on that. But we'll be bringing you lots of updates over the coming months as we uh, go through that Catalyst program and get, get some of the participants on the podcast to talk about it. Yeah, um, it'll be um, a learning experience for all of us. <laughs> yeah, and that's what the podcast is all about, right? Yep. Sharing, that, sharing those learnings. Absolutely. Um, so Alicia, one of the common themes that have come up during many of our episodes and something that we plan to address with our Catalyst program is the need for upskilling and collaboration across the different functional teams within an organisation. Um, so how, how can organisations best approach this, do you think? Yeah, I think it's important to, to think about psychological health and safety or workplace mental health. I know those two um, terms are interchangeable still. Um, to think about it as, um, you know, to do this effectively you need to take a systemic approach. You need to think of the function as a system. And like you've already mentioned, um, it's a psychological health and safety system and how to implement that system. So if we think about it from a systems perspective, it's um, you know thinking about which teams in your organization, so which of those functional teams, whether they sit in Health and safety in HR, in injury management, it'll all depend on how your organisation is structured. Um, but all of those functional teams have a role to play. Um, and even down to, you know, line managers and um, leaders and how, how they're understanding what this function is and what this system is um, and how to maintain it as, you know, an ongoing um, an ongoing system. So what we need to be thinking about is, you know, firstly, identifying your functional teams in your organisations. Um, so health and safety, HR, HR might have organisational development, um, leadership and culture, um, you know, all of those different teams, um, injury management, return to work. You need to be um, ensuring that all of those different teams understand what psychological health and safety is. Um, so providing specific training for those teams. Um, just so everyone is talking the same language and having um, a unified approach or a streamlined approach. And each of those teams will, like I said, have a role to play. And it's really making sure that you're, um, you know, 
those teams need to need to understand what role it is that they play. So moving on to role clarity, um, making sure that you know you understand if you're in um, health and safety um, what your responsibilities are to maintain um, the psychological health and safety system, for example. But then if you're in HR, it might be that your responsibilities will lie within um, making sure all of these different functional teams are um, keeping up with their competencies for, for understanding what they need to do. And then even at that action planning phase. Um, so, you know, once you know what your hazards are from a, a psychosocial perspective, if you've assessed the risk um, and you've identified what the risks are, you will need to then respond to those risks according to your data and your information. So um, that will require action planning. So you might have an action plan for the organization. You might have action plans for specific areas in the organization. And it might be HR's responsibility then to, you know, to partner with different areas or departments to come up with, with those actions. So it's really about, um, yeah, training and upskilling your, your functional teams um, and making sure that they understand what role they play in managing and maintaining this system. Um, and also down to the level of the line managers, um, making sure that, you know, your, um, your uh, you know, informing all of your line managers that they have a responsibility to, what is that responsibility when it comes to workplace mental health? Um, so, you know, as basic as it gets is they need to be understanding um, what psychosocial hazards are and what role they play in identifying them, you know, um, over time and then how to actually mitigate any risks if they're there. Um, and, you know, checking in with staff and making sure that, um, you know, that consultation is ongoing with staff around, um, you know, how they're finding work, um, their roles, um, the system that they work in. And by doing that and checking in and having those uh, conversations, they're actually, um, you know, uh, monitoring risks as, as um, weeks and months pass forward. So not just waiting for a formal risk assessment, but they do have a role to play also in um, ongoing management. Yeah. And if we're thinking about making cultural change um, and elevating, I guess, psychological health and safety, then uh, line managers, I think, are the face of that for the organisation, for the average employee. Um, and so for them to be able to talk about work design um, and aspects of, of good work that facilitate good mental wellbeing and be confident and competent in that area, um, then I think that's going to have a big impact on the overall culture. Definitely, yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's that um, ensuring leadership capability is there um, and HR probably has a big role to play in that, continuously making sure, you know, as leaders um, come and go as well or change roles, um, that they're aware of, um, you know, role, what role they play in um, creating a psychologically healthy and safe work environment. Um, you know, what does that mean and what do they need to look out for and, and do? Yeah. So, so another topic that um, we've often spoken about on the podcast is psychosocial risk assessment and how most of the tools available at the moment um, on the market, they don't actually give an indication of risk. What do you see as the main opportunities for innovation in this area? 
Yeah, so um, regular listeners would have heard my take on psychosocial risk assessment a few times, but I guess for new listeners uh, or for people who haven't listened to those episodes, um, we see that I guess current methodology around psychosocial risk assessment is really limited. Um, Typically, you don't get um, an outcome that you'd expect from a health and safety risk assessment, which is likelihood and consequence of harm. Um, And so you could argue, well, if you're not getting likelihood and consequence of harm as an output, then really what you've performed isn't actually a risk assessment. So um, we really feel that there's a a big um, need for innovation in this area. Uh, And particularly when you look at things like the incoming, um, well, now they're actually out, actually the model. Yeah, yeah, the model workplace health and safety uh, updates to which incorporate psych health uh, and safety. Um, But they have flagged that for a company to assess the risk, they need to understand the severity and frequency and duration uh, of psychosocial hazard exposure. Um, So if you look at an employee engagement survey or an employee perception style survey, where you're just asking people a few questions around different domains like workload or autonomy or supervisor support, and you're just asking them to agree to strongly disagree on a number of statements, it's highly unlikely you're considering the severity frequency and duration of exposure. You're just getting perceptions of work design, which is fundamentally different from a, a risk assessment. So, um, you know, we're really uh, excited that we actually have a risk assessment uh, that we've designed ourselves, and we believe it's the first in the world to actually take this methodology, which is more akin to a, a, an occupational hygiene exposure assessment, which asks people to reflect on the severity, frequency, and duration of stress experienced in response to um, different psychosocial hazards. Uh, the other thing that we're working towards using longitudinal data, and the Catalyst program is going to be fantastic for this because we're going to have you know upwards of 10,000 people participating in it to give us a really large data source, is asking people three or six months following a risk assessment about their experience of burnout, psychological distress, absenteeism and presenteeism in order to come up with a predictive rating of of risk. So really um, what we're working towards is not just looking at each hazard in isolation, which is a limitation of current methodology, but also moving towards, hey, what is your cumulative psychological injury risk based on all of these factors that you've assessed? And really the end point is we want to get to a a point where following a a survey immediately, once you've closed it off, um, you could say, well, our overall risk score is say 80 out of hundred. Now, what does that mean? Well, we can say, well, companies that score 80, for instance, maybe it's, hey, if you don't do anything in the next six months, you can expect 30% of your employees to experience burnout, 20% of of employees to take time off work due to work-related stress. Maybe 1% will actually lodge a formal um, psychological injury claim. And in that way, um, that's something that you could elevate to exec or board level very easily going, well, we did our risk assessment. This is the likelihood and consequence of harm. And then it's up for the exec and board to determine, hey, are we comfortable with that? They can actually accept that risk if they want, or they can say, no, you know what? We don't actually like that negative impact that we're having on our employees. And you know, really our target should be here. And how do we get there? Well, we look back at our risk assessment results and we can see the hazards that have most contributed to the overall risk score. And then that is obviously where we can prioritize action. So, um, you know, what we're doing, you know, I'm, I'm really excited, you know, we love innovating here. And, and I think that's a really much needed innovation, actually really having a, an assessment that can be scaled effectively to help companies understand risk in a way that they um, are used to understanding risk. So likelihood and consequence of harm and having that predictive um, uh, algorithm in there as well is, is gonna be really exciting over the coming months. Yeah, and I'm quite excited um, just from that perspective um, 
I mean, outside of our own um, interests in terms of what that can actually add um, to the um, general body of research around psychosocial hazards and the connections with um, with health outcomes. Um, I think to actually have some um, really strong data um, in there will be um, fantastic for the broader um, community. Yeah. So uh, I like this idea of not just attaching an ROI figure to it, but looking at actually health implications. Um, the ROI argument and, you know, what companies can expect uh, dollar for dollar in investment in mental health in the workplace, I don't think it's really moved the needle at all. Um, I don't think the board's really necessarily interested in it, but understanding the health impacts for broader sustainability um, and corporate social responsibility, I think is important. Yeah. And then that, you know, that does go out into then um, more social impacts outside of just your mm -hmm. um, your bottom line um, in terms of your employees, but also, yeah, what are you contributing to the disease burden um, within your community? Yeah. And that could be the supply chain. It could be families and, and that as yeah. well. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, no, really interested about the future of that and, um, you know, what part we can play, not just in terms of educating people through our 45,003 training academy and through this podcast, um, but also, you know, in terms of making some of these tools available um, worldwide. Yeah. Just imagine what things we'll be able to talk about at episode 200. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're going to be slowing down the pace of, of, the release of these these episodes yeah. so yeah you'd think a lot would have changed by then yeah well I've, we should have at least two cohorts done by then so um yeah who, and hopefully our first cohorts in uk and canada as well so yeah, yeah no it's gonna be no. uh i'm gonna the have to listen back boggles. to this episode 100 <laughs> <laughs> well uh yeah i think uh all of us have really enjoyed the first 100 episodes and uh definitely looking forward to the next 100 we're planning on sticking around um, and continuing to push out these these podcasts um, and we'll be aiming for that weekly cadence so um you know on behalf of myself joel alicia it's been great doing these these podcasts with you and uh yeah look forward to continue to do them yeah here likewise well uh listeners that brings us to the end of a very long but very special 100th episode of the psych health and safety podcast thank you so much to our regular listeners in particular who've been with us on this journey uh, ever since episode one um, and to our new listeners, uh, we hope that you'll continue to tune in and, and uh, take in some of the great content from the amazing guests that we uh, somehow managed to get on our podcast. <laughs> um, remember that we do video these things. So uh, in fact, we've been videoing this whole uh, 100th episode, even though we've recorded it over several uh, episodes. Thanks to Jack for putting it together. And, and a big shout out to Jack yeah, as well. Yeah, big shout out to Jack. Our master editor. His master movies, editor yeah. all the post-production work and all the social media clips that's that's all jack so uh thanks to jack um you can check out the videos that jack has stitched together on the flourish dx youtube page and he does uh he does pop the odd easter egg in there so um <laughs> <laughs> he does he does it's very it's very rare but he yeah, does, yeah. yeah. I, i'd love to take some more liberties on that i love a good easter egg you hear that jack you've got permission there you go um, and, uh, yeah, if you go over to the Flourish DX LinkedIn page, you'll see some clips from this uh, episode as well with our amazing guests. Uh, while you're over on LinkedIn, then feel free to connect with Alicia, myself, and Joelle uh, if you'd like to continue the conversation. But that brings us to the end of uh, uh, episode 100, and uh, we'll catch you in episode 101. Hooray. <laughs> You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.